Welcome to the Why God Why podcast. My name is Peter Engelert. We are part of the Luminov Network. We exist to respond to the questions you don't feel comfortable asking in church. We are here with our fantastic producer, Nathan Yoder, and a new host, one of our co-hosts. We love Aaron, but we are here with the fabulous... I had to come up with an adjective, Alyssa Matz. How are you, Alyssa? I'm doing good, Peter. Well, hey, we have Alyssa on too because she has an MSW, a master's in social work, and that's a great segue to our um, conversation on mental health. Today, we'll be asking the question, why does a mental health breakdown wreak havoc on a family? And we are here with my new friend, guest Tracy Artson. Uh, she's a friend of one of our other guests, Becky Harling. She's currently working on a Bible study about mental health. And so I think that her story is going to resonate with many of you. I'll just kind of say this, then I'm going to hand it over to Alyssa to get us started. If you haven't been through a mental health breakdown, you probably know someone who has. And so I just encourage all of our listeners, there's going to be some really practical and helpful uh, aspects of this conversation. What do you think, Alyssa? Yeah, I think this is an important topic, and I'm really glad that we're here talking about it with Tracy today. Tracy, would you mind introducing yourself, maybe sharing a little bit about your story? Sure. Thank you both for having me. I'm really excited to be here today. Um, it's an honor. And I'll admit that I was a little um, nervous when you sent the question to me. Like, this would be a great question for us to answer. How does a mental health breakdown wreak havoc on a family? Um, I think that's a little bit deeper than a lot of conversations we're having. Um, you know, the conversations that we're all used to having are mental health. That's important. Um, how has your family been affected by that? But the wreak havoc part kind of caused me to pause and take my breath away. But my personal story is I was raised socially Catholic and was not a believer when my husband Jay and I got married 34 years ago. He was a fairly new believer, but he really led the way in our marriage ceremony, the portion that God would have of that. Um, I was more interested in, you know, the wedding planning and the dresses and all of that kind of stuff. But it was four years later when we were attending a couple's Bible study together after the birth of our first son that Jesus really grabbed a hold of my heart. And then was when I accepted um, the Lord as my Savior and was really committed to raising our kids in a way very different from what my husband and I were raised in. Um, we were both raised in, I guess, some pretty dysfunctional um, family setting. Um, alcohol was abused, and we had a very large community around us. And in my personal family, a lot of that was dysfunctional, and alcohol was abused in a lot of different ways. So coming into marriage, um, it probably would have been good for us to go into marriage and head counseling first. Um, but we were just on different paths. And once we started having children, my job, my role became staying at home with the children and his was climbing the corporate ladder, which he did very successfully. I really felt the first 10 years of our marriage were like a fairy tale. Um, I honestly thought, gosh, I must be a really good wife because he never complains. Um, but really, um, he was struggling since probably late teen years with anxiety and depression. So at age 40, after nine years of marriage, he had an emotional breakdown. So he learned to mask it for a long time, which really is sad. It's really sad to me. Um, 
so that's you know our story um i i was so shocked when we discovered what was wrong it was kind of by accident i knew something was wrong with him but i couldn't put my finger on it and it wasn't something we were comfortable talking about like what's wrong with you <laughs> um but one day one afternoon i was browsing through a good housekeeping magazine came across an article on depression and at the end there were 10 questions and i was just casually breezing through this article and as i read the questions it dawned on me this is what's wrong with jay so that was kind of how we diagnosed depression and anxiety in our marriage Wow. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. What was that season like for you um, walking through um, your husband has anxiety, depression you just shared? Can you just describe a little bit more, maybe details about what that season was like? Well, that season was shocking at first um, because he was kind of a golden boy. Everything he touched turned successful. Um, And so it was really hard for him to accept. And for me, it was a season of um, just fear, um, unknown, not knowing where to turn. Initially, I thought, well, he'll take some medication and we will leave this behind us. Um, But we're still two and a half decades, decades later. We are still living with the effects of mental illness. He struggles with anxiety and depression today. Um, so the season was very frightening and coming from our families of origin, we were not equipped at all how to cope or deal or thrive with this kind of diagnosis. Yeah, I can definitely see how not being prepared for something like that or not being raised in a family where that was talked about or even a culture where that was talked about could be difficult when you finally do face a mental health crisis. Yeah. And I guess, you know, for some of our listeners that are kind of unaware, because you kind of touched on it, um, you know, I want you to feel comfortable with this, but, you know, talk a little bit more about the breakdown, that actual moment, because I think that there's some families that have experienced that, or there's some people, you know, can you just give us some details that you're comfortable of what that moment actually looked like? you know, not only, hey, I found out my husband was depressed, but like this was the moment that, hey, we were were in it and we're walking through it. Yeah, I think a lot of moments come flooding in as you ask that question. Um, but I remember the day, September 9th, 1999, 98. And I remember it clearly. And he just kept pushing through. And there's a a term in mental health care that the farther you get into the forest, the longer it takes to come out. And we were both so naive. And again, not having a great support network around us, not only um, people close to us, but even the medical community. I look back now and how the medical community approached treatment for him um, was very... um, left a lot to be desired, a lot to be hoped for. Um, It was so clear of unsure which direction to go. And we were really walking through this in complete darkness as far as what to do medically and what to do to help him. 
so he kept pushing along in his career and we didn't really slow down our life. Instead, he started taking medication. And although it helped somewhat, it really did not address any of the underlying causes. It treated the symptoms a little bit. Um, we've learned two and a half decades later, there's much more to it than taking medication. Um, but the moment when he just had a breakdown and came home in the middle of the day and just said, I can't go on and, and literally shared with me how hopeless he was and how he felt like he needed to leave this earth and having conversations that were really frightening about not wanting to be here. And here we are with, you know, a young family and three kids and from the outside, you know, people looking in our front door, we look like the model family that had it all together, you know, um, successful husband, beautiful children, um, you know, great marriage. And I called a friend and I knew that his wife had struggled with depression. They had shared that with us very, um, just very subtly. So I called this couple and they came over and talked to me while Jay was in bed. And um, he had been talking about ending his life. And it really frightened me. But he had planned it, how he would do it. And um, they said he needs to go to a hospital. So they helped get him in the car. And he literally curled up, you know, in the car, almost in a ball. And we took him to the hospital which that I thought was going to be relief. But once I left him there, there was complete stop of all communication with me from the hospital. I couldn't talk to him. I felt like he had been whisked away. It was so frightening. I mean, I thought, you know, like you go visit someone in the hospital every day, you take them food. You, I had no idea that when I let go of him at that hospital door that I would be completely cut off for about seven days, during which time he actually left the hospital on his own. And I got a call from the hospital saying, your husband has left and we don't know where he is. That's a lot. Mm -hmm. I, I'm so thankful that you're, you know, you're sharing in this season and you know, I guess as you're looking back, you know, and you're thinking about, I mean, you've mentioned very positive, you know, examples of support, you know, the friends that were there with you, you know, walk us through those seven days and even the months and the years afterwards, you know, what were people saying to you that was helpful, that wasn't helpful, you know, and how did you feel as someone not necessarily directly experiencing a breakdown, but indirectly experiencing it through your husband in that sort of sense? Well, I know definitely what was most helpful. And it was something that started years before this, my personal journey with God. Once I became a believer in Christ, my life changed, like radically. And I found so much joy being involved in Bible study, in um, church community. Um, but it was really a very personal joy that I found. And I have been in Bible studies constantly for the last three decades. Um, and I spend, I'm very disciplined about spending quiet time with the Lord. 
And so that's probably what's been the most helpful. And that's how I want to encourage people who might be walking a similar journey. Because those around us, our family, our friends, our loved ones, they're not going to love us and support us at the way the Lord will. And I know that sounds very religious-y, but it is true. Um, our family, you know, at times was supportive and at times they were clueless. There was a situation when, when my husband was hospitalized, my in-laws who are no longer with us. Um, and I say this with all dignity because I loved them and we had a good relationship, but they came to our home. They lived about an hour away, came to our home that day when Jay was taken to the hospital. They spent the night and the very next morning at the crack of dawn, they woke up and left. And until the time they left this earth, they really ignored that their son struggled. I think because they didn't know how to cope. They didn't know what to do with it. So I don't blame them. I think it's only by the grace of God that I had a good relationship with them. Um, so there were just a few friends that came around that I felt were safe um, to talk to. There was one friend. Um, I had to go to the hospital a few days in a row at 5.30 a.m. And we had three small children. And I'm like, okay, what am I going to do with my children at 5.30 a.m. and get them to school? Um, and I had a dear friend who I didn't even tell her Jay was in the hospital. I just told her I needed her help. And could she come the next three mornings at 5.15 a.m. and get the kids to school? And she did. She never asked a question. She was so sweet and gentle. Um, it was actually on her birthday the year before that um, Jay had that breakdown. And I was supposed to be going to birthday lunch with her that day, but canceled because our youngest was homesick. So thank goodness wow. I was home. Mm -hmm. What a great friend. Um, yeah. I just want to go back a little bit, back to um, maybe you were talking about how your in-laws reacted um, to this mental health crisis. Um, I was just wondering, what kind of misunderstandings do you think that they had? Or do you think that other people may have when they see a family walking through something like this? There's so much misunderstanding. Um, I think they were devastated that their son was suffering and struggling. Um, and maybe the biggest misunderstanding was caused by our lack of transparency and our lack of being truly vulnerable. Maybe we contributed to that. Um, but just explaining to them what was going on, it was so hard for them to get their minds around it. And I just don't think that they had any idea what to do or even say. You know, we often can. Um, associate with when there's a tragic loss of life, a young child or a sudden accident, people are at a loss for words. And I think they were just at a loss. They had no idea, which brought in a way embarrassment and shame upon us. And especially for the ones suffering, embarrassment and shame are just awful to deal with. Just awful. It just feeds it. Mm. So one of the reasons we have Alyssa here as a co-host, she was, uh, she did one of our questions and episodes on, you know, why do my friends in crisis need me? So I, I think she's a, she's a good co-host for this, but 
I guess, you know, as Alyssa asks these questions and I've just, you know, I'm just really grateful for your vulnerability. Um, help us understand, cause you know, this has been a journey. You're still kind of healing through this. What were, you know, the, the next six to 12 months, even the next year, because I'm thinking about your husband and you and your family, you know, you're walking into very public places like church, like the grocery store, like all this. And for our listeners that are just kind of unaware, you know, what was that like? Because, you know, there, there's similarities, but then there's a uniqueness of when a tragedy or crisis happens, trying to kind of, I don't know how else to say it, but like, you know, acclimate to normal life, you know, as you go back, what were you thinking and feeling? What was your husband thinking and feeling? Was it hard to get back out? Was it, were you able to get back out? You know, help us understand what that was like. So the first five years, we hit it completely. We tried to carry on as normal. And we just pushed through and tried, I tried to keep things normal. And I look back now and that was a mistake on my part because it wasn't okay. Um, and normal, I don't know, I think normal has a very vague definition now, especially post pandemic, what is normal? But I just tried to keep it as minimal as possible, keep the effects as minimal as possible. But that's really difficult to do when the symptoms of severe depression and anxiety are, you know, loss of sleep, irritability, emotional roller coaster, inability to focus, or inability to be um, in a in a public situation, and it was so unpredictable. So it was really difficult, very difficult, especially trying to keep it under wraps, keep it hidden from everyone. Even at times I tried to keep it hid from our children because they were young and especially when they were adolescents. Um, but because of the complexity of mental illness, um, it's so complex. I mean, I believe mental illness treatment and support is still in its infancy. I liken it to breast cancer 60 years ago. Um, you know, there was so little known about what it was, how to treat it. And I believe that true today. Um, doctors, and we've moved a lot because of my husband's job, but we'd move and we'd find a new doctor and they would think totally different of the last doctor we were with. And even from counseling. And there's so many things that affect it. There's such a misunderstanding. I, I remember um, one of our son's teammates mother committed suicide and we knew this woman and it was tragic my husband could not go to the funeral and the whole team went to the funeral as a team unit and parents we put on a the after a memorial luncheon and my husband couldn't go he just there was no way he could do this and I just said I'll go by myself I'll take him and it's okay you don't have to go but a few weeks later, the same group of teen parents were sitting at a restaurant post a game and one woman spoke out so harshly and so condemning. 
about this woman who had taken her life, how selfish it was, how inconsiderate, how could she do it? Why wouldn't she just take medicine and get better? It's just ridiculous. That was her position. And my husband and I sat there. She was right across the table from us. And I just put my hand under the table on his lap and just rubbed his leg and tried to comfort him. Today, I wish I would have, looking back, I wish I would have just whispered in his ear, we can go now, and got up and excused ourselves politely without making a scene and got him out of there so he didn't have to sit and be subjected to it. But there's so much misunderstanding. Even if you know someone who struggles, you don't understand it. My husband will say to me, because he still struggles, and in fact, we're in a season right now that's really difficult for him. And he'll say to me, you don't understand. And I've lived right next to it for almost 25 years. So people just don't understand. Mm. Let me, I just want to follow up to, you know, kind of what you said, because, you know, what I heard you say was there was five years that you tried to live life normally you know, at what point did you decide we're going to be authentic and, you know, we're, we're going to be real and honest with this. So, you know, I think, cause that would help our listeners. And I'm, I'm also thinking of the people that they might not know someone that's experiencing a breakdown and you're kind of painting a picture that, you know, we could be friends with someone in small groups, coworkers, and, not saying that you're looking for signs. I don't think I'd walk up to someone. I don't think I'd walk up to Alyssa and be like, Hey, Alyssa, you know, you seem a little stressed. Did your family go on a breakdown? But I think that we can just become more aware. So at what point did you kind of decide we're going to be more authentic about this as opposed to kind of holding it in? Well, we gradually would share very little information with people. Um, but we didn't decide to become authentic. My husband did. <laughs> we were at a couple's, we were at a couple's marriage retreat weekend. And I don't even remember who the speakers were or what the topic of the retreat was, but a typical church repeat, retreat, there was about a hundred couples there or a hundred people. And the last day, we went to a historic chapel on the grounds. And our pastor, who's just a wonderful guy, and his wife just opened up and kind of recapped the weekend, but just said, we want to open it up to a time if anyone has anything they want to share. You know, if this weekend spoke to you and kind of opened the door. And my husband leaned over and said to me, I'm going to get up and speak. And I had no idea what he was going to speak about. And he got up in the front of 100 people and shared his story and shared like some dark details and probably went on for 15 minutes. And I'm sitting in the pew crying, but I had so many mixed emotions. And he came and sat down and afterwards, so many people came up to us and thanked us, thanked him. and. What struck me the most was dear friends of ours approached us who we knew very well. And she shared that when she was in college, her mother committed suicide and we never knew that about her. And she just said, thank you for sharing this. 
And now we know that about her and she knows this about us. And there's just something there that's helpful and hopeful. Um, And she shared her story with us and she hadn't shared it very often at all. Well, the next Sunday we go to church and Jay tells me that morning he didn't want to go to church. And I said, do you have sharing remorse? (laughs) And he said, yes. And he was very anxious about going to church. He was questioning, why did I do that? People are going to look at me differently. They're going to judge me. And we went and several people over the next few weeks approached us and thanked us. And I think through that, Jay learned and realized, wow, I can help people. So he really took the step to help others and started sharing his story with a lot of people. And that unsettled me. I'm like, you're sharing a little too freely here. (laughs) Um, But it's been fine. I mean, it's really been fine and good and good. I think it's helped him, but helped others as well. So in our, we own an um, elevator company, and in our business, we have a corporate chaplain who we have on a retainer. And my husband made the decision to do this years ago, that any one of our employees who needs counseling or any kind of life coaching, that we pay for it. We don't need to know that you're talking with them. It's a husband and wife, and they're amazing. We don't need to know anything about it. It's all very confidential. And in the first couple of years, a couple of people utilized that benefit, but now it's just common. I mean, people, they have an office in our office and our staff is free to use that um, resource as much and as often as they need. Wow, that's amazing. I think more companies and more workplaces should do something like that for their employees because Mental health is just as important as physical health, um, as emotional health, any other kind of health. um, Mental health is just as important. And I think that's really cool that you provide that for your employees. Uh, I want to go back to what you were saying. You talked about your church and how you found them to be supportive um, to your surprise when your husband started sharing his story about his mental health crisis. More people stepped forward and said, hey, I resonate with that, that I relate with you, that happened to me, or I'm going through this too, which I just think is so powerful that when we share our stories and our struggles, it opens the door for other people to open up about theirs. Um, I just want to ask you, since your church seemed to respond so well um, and so healthily to um, your husband sharing, do you think that that is a common thing for churches? Do you think that the church usually gets it wrong? Because honestly, I've seen it a lot of times where the church does get mental health wrong or um, doesn't respond to mental health crises in a healthy way. Um, What do you think about that? Well, I think a lot about that. And in one of the chapters I'm writing, I call out the church. Um, There are some, some churches that are doing great work. You know, Kay Warren, Saddleback Church, she's doing an amazing work. But that was birthed out of tragedy of their son, Matthew. I don't think, although I love my church, I don't think my church does enough for it. I don't think most churches do enough in this arena. And I know many churches actually harm instead of help families. 
in doing my research for um, what I'm writing, I met a woman who belonged to a church and their church did not believe in treating mental illness with any kind of treatment, medication, counseling. It was all frowned upon. And this is a Christian church. So they call themselves a Christian church and profess salvation through Christ. And when she was 13 years old, her mother committed suicide. She went to church that night and did not talk about it to anyone. When she was a little bit older, her only sibling committed suicide. And a few years later, her father committed suicide. So talk about mental illness wreaking havoc on a family. It does. And she's the only surviving member of her family of origin. Mm. It makes you wonder if maybe her church had handled that differently or had been more supportive in that way, if the outcome maybe would have been different for that family. I think she believes yes. I believe yes. Because we are a family that, because we've sought out how to thrive with this debilitating diagnosis. Um, and our three, we have three grown sons, and at different times they've struggled as well. I mean, statistic is if you have a parent who's committed suicide, their children are seven times more likely to attempt it. Um, that's a pretty strong statistic. And I would suspect that in recent years with how the pandemic and everything that falls into that effect of the pandemic, I would wonder if that number is not even higher now, because I know, I believe suicide is on the rise or us just learning about suicide and people who have taken their lives is becoming more transparent because there's another, there was another death in our community years ago and we were told it was a heart attack, but years later, people said he took his life. Hmm. I, I want to come back to the church thing because I'm a pastor and <clears throat> it's easy for me to throw myself under the bus. Um, I'm also married to a mental health um, counselor. So, you know, I, I guess <clears throat> I guess what I'm trying to kind of process with you is is even a vision for the church to to really support mental health in a healthy way. And one of the things that my wife and I talk about a lot is, is actually knowing our lanes. Um, so like for me, you know, I'm not going to diagnose if you're anxious or depressed. Cause I, I, frankly, I don't know. I, I can, I can acknowledge a symptom. And then my wife will say, you know, when someone, you know, asks a question, why does suffering happen to good people? She can ask, follow up and ask some questions that are really tough like hey why does this mean so much to you and stuff like that but she's not necessarily going to give the theological response and on the other hand what i'm processing as i listen to you also and even i'd throw this to Alyssa too you know the church is kind of set up with some you know proactive measures with mental health so you know if you're in a small group um 
how you manage a mental health situation with actual real community. So I'm not just saying we meet and do Bible study, but like you're actually growing. That's going to be something that's helpful. Prayer and Bible reading, coming to church on Sunday morning. I guess what what I'd love to hear, we'll start with you, Tracy, and then I want to throw it to Alyssa. You know, what would be kind of some vision points, paint us a picture of how the church kind of in its lane can be more ready to respond to mental health breakdowns and even just mental health in general? Well, I think churches need to adopt like they do in grief care, divorce care, addiction. Um, They need to have an arm that supports mental health. So they need to have someone on staff. You know, like we do, there are a lot of people who need um, counseling or mental health direction, just someone to talk to. Like we don't even know where to go. You know, it's scary to Google search psychiatrist. Okay, let's just pick one. It's frightening to, you know, search counselor, life coach, and just pick one. I mean, it's not like you're Google searching, you know, someone to come in and spray fertilizer on your yard. I mean, this is important stuff. So I think the church should have someone on staff, a designated person. And, you know, like we do in our business, this is our corporate chaplain, and he's here to help you in counseling and therapy and coaching, whatever you need. When you come upon life's challenges, I mean, we had an employee whose husband passed away very unexpectedly, suddenly. She knew right away. He called her that day. Our corporate chaplain called her that day just to be there and support. So I think the church needs to have some resources that are specifically for mental health care of their church family. I think another thing is they need to talk about it from the pulpit. You know, I was in church when our pastor, who was very open about it, mentioned again about growing up with a mother who struggled with mental illness. That was when God tapped on my shoulder almost audibly and I felt in my spirit to teach a Bible study at church for families who struggle with mental illness. And I was like, oh no, I don't want to do that. So I kind of disagreed with the Lord's nudging, but during my quiet time, it kept coming back up. So I did a search Bible study for families with mental illness. And this was a couple of years ago. There was nothing, nothing out there. Now there's great books that have been written about, you know, families who struggle, but a true Bible study about it, there was nothing out there. So I thought I was off the hook. I thought I might've misunderstood, (laughs) but then God made it clear that he wanted me to write one because that's really how I got through. That became my anchor, the word of God. And so I think the church needs to be more open in biblical teaching. And what does the Bible say about mental illness? Um, You know, I've, I've often wondered about when Jesus was tempted, when the story is that the enemy tempted him to jump from the temple. Well, if we study the height of that temple and in Jesus's human form, had he jumped being human, his life would have ended. Now, I've talked to a couple of pastors, you know, have you ever thought about that temptation and what it could have meant, like from a suicide perspective? And 
every pastor I've mentioned it to have kind of gotten glazed over and said, no, never thought about that. Um, but, um, you know, the Bible teaches a lot about depression and anxiety. I mean, David was clearly struggled with anxiety. And Elijah and Hannah, I mean, there's plenty. I can't imagine Noah did not deal with some anxiety. But there are specific characters in the Bible that if we were to define their life with being touched with depression and anxiety, I think we could all say, yes, they were. So I think as a church, we need to, you know, just teach from God's word. And the the verse that there was a season in my life, um, probably 15 years ago when I was praying because the symptoms had resurfaced for my husband severely again. And I felt like he wasn't doing what he needed to do to be helped. Easy for me to say, not so easy for the patient. But I started praying to God, can you release me from this marriage? Can I be have your permission, Lord? And John 21, all I kept hearing was feed my sheep, tend my sheep. And I listened to a song by Third Day, Give Me Revelation. I would listen to that song probably six times a day. And just seeking God. If God would have given me just the nod, I would have been out of the marriage. And I sit here today and grateful I didn't. Because God never gave me that permission. Instead of what I would hear was, you know, tend my sheep, feed my lamb. And that's who Jay is. He's God's child. Mm. You know, before we go on with your story, I mean, Alyssa, I mean, you, you're obviously passionate and talented. What would you add to what Tracy just said, you know, about, you know, kind of the church and kind of paint a picture for us of what that might look like? Yeah, I couldn't agree more with all of the things Tracy said about what more the church could be doing. And I, yeah, I completely agree First thing, definitely having someone on staff, or if you don't have the resources to have someone on staff, partner with um, an outside organization of someone who is a mental health expert and knows resources and knows interventions and knows about mental illness. Mm. Um, it's just important. Um, it's a facet that shouldn't be ignored. And having connections or having someone directly in, on your staff that can support people in that way is crucial. Um, definitely a missing piece in a lot of churches these days. And the second thing, again, I was you, you said exactly what I was going to say, Tracy, about speaking from the pulpit about mental illness or just getting it up there because it kind of, it trickles down. Um, what gets talked about at the top will be talked about in the congregation, will be talked about in small groups, will be talked about on one-on-one -on -one conversations. So if we can start at the top and have our lead pastors, our student pastors, whatever it is, having them talk about mental health and mental illness, that will trickle down. Then the small group leaders will start talking about it. Then the church leaders will start talking about it. And then the congregation will start talking about it. And the families will start talking about it. And it's just, it needs to be more visible and um, more out there talked about, acknowledged. Some churches don't even acknowledge mental illness as a problem. And that is a problem in and of itself uh, that we could get into. But acknowledging that mental health is an issue and that it needs to be addressed and healed um, is the first step. And then connecting with people who can resource uh, help for mental health and getting 
members, leaders to be talking about uh, mental health and looking for signs of people who may be struggling and having them be trained in that way too. Just mm. so good. Wow. <laughs> talk forever. No, no. Um, I mean, obviously, Tracy, we're going to have you back on and we'll probably have Alyssa. Who knows? Maybe we'll kick me out and it'll just be you too. But um, I, I want to shift. I, I think it's important because I, uh, I'm hoping our listeners realize there are conversations about mental health happening in churches. It might not be in your church, but there are churches out there. And I think that that's important. But now I, I kind of want to focus on our listeners um, because I, uh, the, the Monday through Saturdays, you know, of, of our lives, the very practical, you know, I'm imagining, you know, in the next few weeks or few months, someone's going to find out, um, you know, my friend's husband just went to the hospital for mental illness, or my friend's wife just went to the hospital for mental illness, or, you know, I have a, um, a coworker that went in for mental illness or, um, you know, one of my friend's kids. And the focus of this episode, you know, Alyssa's episode was the direct, the person experiencing, we're talking about the indirect. And I guess I just throw this to both of you. Like when you become aware of that, you know, what are some, I, I, I mean, everybody's an individual, but what are some things that you would encourage people to respond when there's a mental health breakdown and when someone finds out about it? I think the first thing um, is to not make judgment. Do not judge that person. Do not because you have no idea. I mean, I've lived next to it for two and a half decades and I still have no idea what goes on in my husband's mind. It's like when someone has a broken leg, you don't feel that break in your own body. And so when he is struggling emotionally, mentally, I can't really relate to that. So I think the first thing is don't judge. Don't be so careful what you say. Because there are things I've said directly to my husband um, that have been so not helpful. <laughs> Never intentional, of course. Um, but talk and just be there and ask, how can I help? Because often what we think is helpful is not. And just just ask, how can I help? And I think the second thing is if you're a family member who has a loved one, I mean, the way I have gotten through, and we are a thriving family. We own two businesses. We have a ministry that we founded that is not related to mental health at all. Um, it's an orphan care ministry, but our pastor has said it should be named Saving Jay because it really gave Jay his purpose in life. And God has blessed our ministry and um because of my husband's brilliance and, and vision. And because he said yes to one little thing, God called him to go on a mission trip. So I would just encourage people that, you know, your mental health diagnosis does not define who you are. It's something that has happened to you. Um, like when you fall and break your leg, um, it does not define who you are. And it does not define who my husband is. So remember that that is not who they are. Mm. 
Man, th- those are some great thoughts. Alyssa, you know, you, you talked about the direct and I think Tracy's given us, would you, what would you say to the family, the indirect that are dealing with it? You know, what encouragement would you give our listeners when they find out someone's having a breakdown? Mm. To encourage the whole family is what you're asking, right? Yeah. So mm-hmm. if, you know, if you were a friend of Tracy mm-hmm. and she shared with you, hey, Jay had a breakdown, how, mm-hmm. what would be some things that you'd be thinking about to help Tracy? Mm. Well, I would think about your family as a whole um, because mental health, it of course, it affects the individual that is going through the crisis, but it affects the whole family. Um, in social work, we have the family systems theory, which just basically talks about what's going on with one individual affects everyone. And so I think just understanding that from an outside perspective that um, the rest of the family can't just move on with their life or can't just forget about that one family member, um, but to really address the needs of the family as a whole and to think about what each individual or even ask them what each individual person needs, how they're being affected, um, and not just assuming that oh, it's not their problem. They're just the wife or they're just the kid. Like that, they're not impacted as much as the direct person. That's incorrect. (laughs) Everyone is impacted. And so just looking at the family, talking to the family, seeing what each individual person from that family needs and how they're impacted by it because everyone is. Mm. Yeah. Even as you were talking, um, trying to find words in a podcast, direct and indirect. I mean, there's probably a better word, but obviously everyone's directly affected by it. Just trying to, but going from there, you know, this time's gone way too fast. Um, and I just love these episodes. And I think, you know, just, I can't wait for your book to come out. We'll ask more, but we have two kind of final questions. Um, let me just kind of start here. What's one question you wish people would have asked you? Um, as you've walked through these last since 1999, what is that? 21 years. What's one question you wish people would have asked you about what you've been through? 23. I'm a pastor. I don't always count well. So there I we wish go. people would have asked, what can we do for your kids and for you? I think one of the failures on my own part was our kids were adolescents young when it started. And then it, we had another serious episode when they were adolescents and I think one of my personal failures is I didn't take care of them well enough. I think God did. God did an amazing job taking care of them because they could have gone off the rails and they didn't. Um, But how can we help your kids? What can we do to help your kids? Um, We've all in our family had counseling now, but or some more than others. Um, But I think I should have, gotten them into counseling right away when they were young. And so another thing I think they could ask me today, how have you gotten through this? Because we are intact and we live pretty full lives because my answer would be, I've gotten through it by living out James 4, 8, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. And I have a faith and an intimacy with God that I think is way deeper than most people because of this suffering that we've gone through as a family. Mm. Wow. Um, Tracy, as always, thank you so much for just being honest. And, um, you know, this has been a huge topic. So we always close with one question 
And that question is, what would Jesus have to say about this topic? So what we tell every listener is we tell them this, um, Alyssa and I are going to answer that question. And then Tracy, you get to clean up whatever mess we left deal. Does that sound good? That sounds good. You want to go first or you want me, Alyssa? I'll go. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think Jesus would say about mental health in the family. Um, first of all, I think to the person who is struggling with their mental health, I think Jesus would say, I love you. Um, I see you. Um, your mental health doesn't define you. You are valuable. Um, you are a child of God. Um, all of those affirmations. I just think that those things are so important for people who are struggling with mental health because oftentimes they can lose sight of that and they can forget whose they are and who loves them. And I think Jesus would just remind them of that over and over and over again. Um, and to the families that may have loved ones who are struggling with um, a mental health crisis, I think Jesus would say, cast all your cares on me because I care for you. Um, it can be really hard to see a family member um, or a close friend even go through a mental health crisis, but God is with us and he can be our rock and our support um, even when we don't feel strong enough to support that other person um, who is going through the crisis themselves. So that's what I think you would say. Yeah. First of all, just encouragement to the person who's going through the crisis and then just a reminder to the family in the crisis that they can lean and they should lean on him. Wow, that's really good. I love that. Um, you know, as I've been thinking about this episode, there's one story that just kind of keeps coming back to me. So um, the Pharisees, who are the religious leaders um, and the disciples, there's this conversation about this man that's born blind. And they're trying to debate, you know, is it is it his mom who sinned? Is it his dad who sinned? Who sinned? And and Jesus's response was just he completely changed the subject. And, you know, I think that the the main teaching is that it's like Jesus is like, don't make those assumptions. And, you know, I, I think that uh, in our humanity, when we hear a story of what Tracy experienced, um, we try to kind of make some simple explanations where I think Jesus is like, no, this is you know, this is for my glory and I'm working and I go to the broken places and, and no one's messed up and no one sinned. And, and I say that more like we're all imperfect. We're all in, we're all broken. But, you know, I think Jesus would, would sit there and be like, those are the wrong questions to be asking. And I think that this whole episode is the power of the gospel, which is, you know, when life gets really, really dark and even when we're not the one experiencing the breakdown, but we're experiencing the effects of the breakdown is that Jesus wants to offer hope. And sometimes he does that through prayer. Sometimes he does that through Bible reading, but sometimes he does his best work through other people. And so you have this choice to respond in what makes sense or makes you feel better, or you can respond in a way to help someone else. So that's what I'd say. I don't know. Oh, thanks. What do you think, Tracy? Well, I think you both said it beautifully. Thank you. I can see that you have a, a deep understanding and a compassion. And I think Jesus, I think what Jesus would say also is very personally to each of us. Um, it is so sad to me that 
there's a belief that, well, if you're a Christian, you wouldn't suffer from depression. <laughs> if you prayed more, I mean, that still is out there in some church circles. Um, and what you said about it doesn't define you. It's not who you are. You are a child of God. The sad thing is that there are times when they can't believe that. And not just my husband, but I've talked to a lot of people. Um, and and that's where we need to encourage them. Let me believe it for you today. Trust that I believe it. You know, I've said that to Jay before. I believe it for both of us. I've got you on that. You know, Jesus, the man who said, help me with my unbelief said that to Jesus. Um, so I think Jesus would be very compassionate about the topic. And this morning, preparing for this, I listened to Jeremy Camp's song from 2008, There Will Be a Day, based on Revelation 21, 4. And that's what I hear Jesus say to me when times get hard and when things are dark. There will be a day when there's no tears, pain, fears. God's going to wipe away every tear, not just for the person suffering, but for their family, their belief, their believing family members. Um, and the beauty that's in store is going to take care of all of this. So there's great hope. I have great hope, um, even though I know that Jay's struggle is long. It's been going on a long time, and it ebbs and flows. And but I have great hope because I know that there will come a day when Jesus will wipe away all of it. There'll be no more memory. You know, we, we usually end in a particular way, but I, I think the only way for us to end, you know, appropriately is I, Tracy, I just want to give you an opportunity to pray over our guests or, well, you are, you're our guest, but pray over, you know, our audience and the people listening to that. I think that's probably the most appropriate way. Would you mind leading us? I really appreciate that because um, I believe we get through what we get through in our family through prayer. And I, um, if I logged the number of hours of praying just for this subject, <laughs> it would be a lot. So yes, I'd love to pray. Thank you. Dear Father God, I come before you, Lord, and I just thank you for this opportunity to share how you have been the strength the foundation for our family, how through it all you have been there, how you have always sustained us and how you've always made yourself known to me and for Jay and our boys. I lift up every family, every listener today who is struggling or has a loved one struggling. I pray that they would know your presence, Father, in a way that would give great assurance and I pray that when times are difficult, we will remember your faithfulness because you have been faithful through the ages and you will continue to be. Help us to love those who struggle the way that Jesus loved when he walked on earth. Sustain us and encourage us when we need it most. Father, I pray that your power would help tear down the walls of stigma and we look forward to the day when there will be no more memory of these struggles on this earth. And we trust you. We trust you each day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.